Um, so our objectives from this talk is initially the first one was going to be to discuss the importance of studying pandemics. However, current events have proven that objective fruitless. Um, so we're going on to describe the events of and development of the 1918 pandemic, um, discuss me measures and policies instituted in response to this pandemic, mostly focusing on the U.S. response due to availability of a documentation, um, analyze consequences and lessons learned from this pandemic, and then evaluate the responses to the 1918 flu in light of our current uh, outbreak worldwide. So for disclaimers, I have no co conflicts of interest to report. And a quick disclaimer, not in relation to conflicts of interest, pandemic flu and uh, the SARS coronavirus 2 or the virus causing COVID-19 syndrome are very different viruses. Um, for example, of very different case fatality rates. Uh, and um, this new virus seems to be a bit more infectious than the old one. So this can't be used as a prediction of where our current um, issues will be headed. Um, so a little bit about the 1918 influenza. It's a type A H1N1 strain of influenza um, of debated origins. It's not particularly certain what, uh, where this came from. Uh, there are a couple prevailing theories we'll go over later. The, um, this virus lasted overall from roughly summer, uh, late spring, 1918, to the summer of 1919, and we'll go through the different waves of this uh, pandemic as well later on. Uh, this one spreads by via droplets, mostly an airborne spread, as all influenza is, and um, it infected an estimated 500 million people, which at the time in 1918 was 27% of the world population. A lot of these figures are estimated due to um, just the availability of data um, from that time. And then killed roughly uh, contemporary estimates back in 1918 said around 21 million people. Um, most recent uh, paper I've seen published trying to estimate the death toll from this uh, pandemic uh, said 50 million, but said it could have been even higher. Um, so, in the other corner to go over medicine at the time of this, um, medicine had started to go into what they called the modern scientific era, where rather than using, using folk remedy and anecdotal evidence and uh, panaceas, we started going towards evidence-based medicine. Um, we had started developing vaccines, but it had not developed one for the flu yet. Um, if the first effective flu vaccine will come uh, later in the 1920s. Um, microscopes were recently invented and popularized, uh, starting to be used widely as part of the uh, typical workflow for um, doctors uh, caring for their patients. Um, at the time, influenza was widely thought to be caused by a bacterium called Haemophilus influenza. Today, at the time, it was called Pfeiffer's bacillus. Uh, and this bacteria was discovered in 1892. Uh, and this uh, pandemic actually helped uh, discredit the idea that H. Haemophilus influenza was the causative organism of this disease. Um, viruses at the time were considered an unconfirmed theory. Um, it was known that polio, 
polio and rabies were potentially viruses, mostly because they couldn't find a bacterium or other organism that they could see causing these diseases. Um, primary method of in combating infections at this time was uh, serums, um, which uh, relates to their, our picture on the right. The picture uh, described shows someone drawing blood from a horse. Essentially, in a ser for serums, you would uh, culture your, the organism you believe to be causing a disease, uh, inject the uh, causative organism into horses, give them some time to develop antibodies to um, the organisms you've cultured, and then e extract their blood um, and extract the serum of the blood, uh, the, uh, the part containing the proteins and the immunoglobulins. And, in, and injecting that into your patients to help uh, boost the immune response to, to the disease. We don't use these anymore due to issues with serum sickness and the advent of antibiotics. Antibiotics, unfortunately, won't be dis um, discovered and popularized until 1928 and really won't become fully available until the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s. Um, continuous oxygen, because it's a respiratory illness, uh, was first reported use in 1890 and steadily was gaining, gaining promise, prominence through World War I, mostly in treating uh, chemical-related injuries, though was attempted for this. There are respirators, so the iron lung was not invented until the 1920s, and, uh, and uh, ventilators, the kind of the sequel to respirators, won't come around for another couple decades. Um, as well, for public health measures, influenza was considered a seasonal disease, not reportable. No, people rarely kept data on what, how influenza was trending. And yes, because they had treatments for infectious diseases, people at the time were theorizing that all infectious diseases will, will end very soon with their wonderful serums and vaccines. Um, so what was different about this strain from the seasonal flu uh, that didn't... Uh, require as much concern. Um, and this graph kind of demonstrates our, the big difference is the spike in mortality uh, within the age range of uh, the young adults. Um, this was true for young adults involved in World War I, which was happening along the same time, as well as young adults at home in the civilian population. Uh, so it, somehow this particular strain of the flu was able to cause uh, severe damage um, to the lungs in uh, this patient population, and uh, that's why uh, it became uh, such a concern. And it's why we monitor influenza for a peak in these populations even to this day. When we start seeing uh, severe illness in young uh, people, we start worrying about this virus, some, about this virus or something similar returning again. Um, so the typical uh, strain of flu in those days. You can see uh, the dotted line is the 1911 to 1917 st statistics. And to this day, this is mostly the graph you'll see. Influenza tends to affect the very young and the very old and not be particularly virulent for those in the middle. But this one had that peak. So another hypothesis is as to why this was this peak existed was uh, that um, data from going back to pre preserve specimens from the 1900, early 1900s uh, showed that H3 flu strains seemed to be more common in that uh, in the years 
uh, after this age group was born up until this H1N1 uh, 1918 strain. Thus, the thought might have been that these uh, individuals had no exposure to the H1 and had a vigorous immune response, resulting in cytokine storms. There's also the thought, even though we have the, ge uh, the genome sequenced for the H1N1 virus, that there might have been some mutation going on in its particularly uh, fatal times that we just don't know how that occurred and how this uh, flu was able to be so deadly. Um, so, uh, the origin of this flu. So I already alluded to the fact that it was uh, debated pretty frequently. Um, DNA st studies show it's an, of an avian origin, so it was a cross from uh, likely uh, avian livestock over to humans sometime in the early 1918, 1917. Exact start is pretty uh, widely debated. The most common theory is that this emerged in Kansas um, within the United States. Um, an unusual strain of flu was reported in spring 1918, so just before this pandemic started hitting with a predilection for uh, fatalities in young adults. And this, this was followed by the first acknowledged case of flu linked to this pandemic at Camp Funston, an army camp in Kansas. Um, other theories is um, that this may have come from China. China at the time had been undergoing significant civil strife, and there was a reported winter sickness, but without proper in infrastructure and uh, health infrastructure at the time, it's uncertain what, it, what, what the winter sickness was other than some form of respiratory illness. Um, China had sent, around the same time in early 1918, a labor corps that was shipped across Canada in these packed, tightly packed cattle cars um, with a respiratory illness breaking out by the time they got uh, onto boats de destined for Europe and the Western Front. That, thus, this uh, became a popular theory, um, but it has been debunked somewhat uh, due to some genetic analysis of the initial... Um, disease affecting the Chinese. However, uh, one point to the credit of this uh, particular uh, hypothesis is that China had a relatively low impact from the 1918 flu when it cycled back around to the world. And the last theory that isn't uh, widely um, believed is that this actually came out of the UK. Um, there were outbreaks of a fatal respiratory illness in hospital camps, um, noted in late 1917, which also temporarily fits with development of this disease. I can't offer you exact cause, but these are the, com the commonly held theories. Um, so the initial response when this first started uh, cropping up within the US uh, was mostly nothing. Um, army camps were overcrowded because the US was mustering up to send uh, soldiers to war. Um, and it was well beyond uh, the regulations of the army at the time. So it's not a lesson we've learned since then, it's uh, a lesson we already knew, however ignored. Um, the Rockefeller Center in the United States was kind of in, in charge of monitoring for outbreaks and uh, trying to prevent them because it was known that an outbreak will happen once you crowd all these people together. However, they were mostly focused on preventing measles 
uh, a measles outbreak at the time, though they did develop a pneumonia vaccine, which had some limited benefit um, in the diseases to come. Uh, so without um, particularly effective quarantining or uh, stopping this virus at the source within the U.S. Uh, military camps, um, virus through either of the origins uh, we discussed was eventually ended up on the Western Front in World War I in 1918. Um, this led to the second wave, which started in late summer, August. Uh, initially, the first reports came out of Brest, France, Freetown in Sierra Leone, and Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint a travel from the Western Front to those cities or from those cities between them because it was all roughly the, around the same couple days. This was a far deadlier uh, mutation of the strain. The prior strain did have a predilection for uh, killing the young adult population but wasn't as strong and most people tend to recover from it. Um, the evidence that this was the same strain that hit with that first wave that was coming across into France uh, was uh, cities such as Cop Copenhagen which were uh, hit by that first wave were also relatively spared by the, the second wave, but still posted mortality rates in right around 1%. Uh, exact reason for this sudden lethality is unclear. Several theories have been proposed, and uh, we may not know much more than this uh, going on in the future. The cytokine storming we talked about earlier, um, the lack of the circulating H1 um, viruses and the years prior to 1918, uh, resulting in reduced immunity in the general populace. Um, it was one theory is that this was artificially selected for in the trenches. Um, the sicker soldiers got, the more they rotate off the lines, the more they uh, were exposed to other people, other people. So the more severe symptoms caused by the virus had a better chance of spreading and continuing on. Another thought was the chemical agents used at the time are known now to be um, uh, damaging to DNA and could have contributed to uh, the randomization of mutations uh, going on in the virus at the time. Regardless of the theory, this is what uh, ultimately caused the 1918 pandemic to be so terrible. So, um, going in, into uh, the responses to the second wave, at this point it was very much noticed the virus had already spread almost across the world and would uh, spread across all six con con uh, inhabited continents. Um, heart, unfortunately, harsh cens censorship measures on the press in countries involved in the war, uh, the United States, France, Germany, UK, um, w would prevent uh, knowledge of getting out about this uh, for a, oh, some time due to a measure to preserve morale. Now, it wasn't like the uh, people in the world just didn't know influenza was happening. Um, they would still see more obituaries than usual, um, word of mouth, hearing of family and friends who are suddenly struck in uh, low by the flu, um, hearing of uh, villages going dark due to uh, flu running rampant. Uh, but this did lead, lead to a var variable response throughout the USA because uh, different communities es essentially selected what they would do about this themselves without any guidance from the central, uh, from the federal government. Uh, New York City 
because of how overcrowded it, 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 it was at the time, was very used to running into pandemics and actually had a very proactive public health department. And we see one of their bulletins on the left, um, which if you can read the small text on it, um, essentially gives the same uh, public health measures we continue to give today. Cough, cover up coughs, cover up sneezes, um, don't spit on the floor or sidewalk. Luckily, we don't have to say that as much these days. Um, and then this uh, bottom one uh, says, says, shun the common drinking cup. So don't share uh, water, so don't share food. Uh, avoid spread of droplets. Um, they also instituted voluntary quarantines, uh, which is something we've been hearing about recently. Staggered work hours. Um, now there was no work from home uh, in, the, in 1918. However, you, uh, they did try to offset when people were on the streets going from home to work and uh, back again by staggering the work hours at different factories and places of employment. Um, public events were canceled, but interestingly, except for Broadway, which was used as a public health teaching uh, forum where before and after plays they would discuss uh, how to uh, these quarantine measures and how to prevent illness. Um, now another thing, another topic to go into during the second wave uh, was aspirin. Aspirin was kind of a newer drug at the time um, and was thought to basically cure everything. You see this list on a uh, ad, headaches, colds, pains, neuralgias. Um, so it was often used for treating the symptoms of this disease um, due to the uh, joint aches and uh, diffuse pains and headaches and um, cold-like symptoms. Uh, the antithrombotic potential uh, had not been known of aspirin at the time. As you can see on this ad on the left, it says it in all caps, does not affect the heart, um, which we know is to not be true. Uh, also at this time, the Bayer Company, um, who originally uh, patented aspirin, uh, their patent was expiring. So around the time of this pandemic, uh, generics were able to hit the market. So there was a flood of not well-regulated generics with the variable dosing of the aspirin. The doses recommended anyways by uh, JAMA and the U U.S. Army Surgeon General were 8 to 31 grams daily, which is significantly higher than we will allow to be used today in medicine. Um, so today, even loading dose for a heart for a heart attack, you typically would give a 325 of aspirin as your maximum daily dose, uh, which is significantly lower than they were using at the time. So the thought is a lot of these people died of aspirin poisoning, causing hyperventilation, causing bleeds, and there, oh, some of the symptoms of the flu at the time also discussed coughing up blood and um, bruises forming perhaps more from the aspirin than from the actual disease. So one particular case to discuss during the second wave uh, is Philadelphia. So I discussed how um, local governments were left to fend for themselves and how they responded to this virus. And Philadelphia is the case example of what not to do. Uh, the first case noted in Philadelphia was in the Naval Dockyard um, in September 19th, 1918. Uh, quickly, a couple hundred people had started reporting symptoms of flu. 
Um, and this was before this Liberty Loan Parade we see in the background. Um, it was the largest war bond per, uh, parade in the country. Hundreds of thousands of people came in from all around Philadelphia to, to see this parade with thousands of people marching in it. Um, they had airplanes buzzing overhead, they had speeches, um, but as you can see, people were very tightly packed, close together uh, in a city with flu already circulating in. A couple of days after this, the city itself started to shut down as flu cases were in rampant. Um, their morgue, which only had a capacity of 36, um, became backlogged, resulting in hospitals overflowing with uh, dead patients and as well dying patients trying, that they were attempting to treat. There were reports of private doctors, uh, mostly their business was in house calls, doing upwards of 50 house, house calls a day due to flu. Um, add, this, add to this that a quarter of the doctors in the city were deployed in France at the time for the war. So they had diminished uh, healthcare ability to respond, combined with um, just an overload on their healthcare system. As, as we see today with the flatten the curve, they had the exact opposite. Everything happened at once after this, um, after this parade and resulting in the city being non-functional. Interestingly, during this time, uh, private citizens essentially volunteered and uh, filled the gap uh, that the city was unable to provide. They would volunteer their cars as ambulances, which were not um, used particularly at this time concept of like an ambulance and a 911 comes much later in American history. Um, and so, but this became like a proto uh, ambulance and 911 service with people volunteering, volunteering time at the telephone switchboards uh, to become 911 dispatchers and dispatch uh, other volunteers to go drive the ill to hospitals. Um, Philadelphia at the end of this outbreak will have half a million cases in total, 16,000 dead just within this city, and it's the worst hit city in the United States. Um, so we discussed how they had already developed vaccines to um, polio, to rabies, anthrax. Polio actually came later. Um, that was a misspeak, but anthrax, rabies. Um, the vaccines were attempted to the flu, however, they're all developed against this Haemophilus influenza, uh, resulting in uh, failure in the serums. Now, it was still questioned whether uh, H-flu actually caused the flu, and uh, there was growing uh, concern that this was more of a virus. So some of the producers would even mix in just whatever they found in sputum cultures and lung samples uh, into their serums in hopes of accidentally catching this virus when they injected it into the horses and extract their immunoglobulins. Um, however, that pneumonia vaccine we talked about the U.S. Army creating earlier had shown some data, not completely uh, effective, but helped treat some of the secondary pneumonias and help uh, people weather through uh, this disease. Um, the picture on the, on the right, not left, uh, is Oswald Avery, the man credited with developing this pneumonia vaccine. Um, he uh, will go on later to dis debunk uh, the thought of proteins carrying uh, genetic material, which helped uh, further the development of the knowledge of DNA. Um, so worldwide spread. So um, we're going to discuss 
what else was going on with within the rest of the world. There aren't very good maps of the path of 1918 flu that um, I could find that were particularly helpful graphics. Uh, however, this one uh, is particularly good for the United States showing uh, that each of these numbers represents a week. So within six weeks, flu was across the entire United States. This was before uh, passenger airplanes were a thing. This was before um, the modern highway infrastructure. So this was all mostly rail cars and um, shipping that uh, tra transported this virus across the country. Um, so worldwide spread. So the first place hit by the um, second wave due to it originating kind of within the Western Front radiating out uh, was Germany. Um, so initially it started on the Allied side of the, of the war lines, um, went over to the German side, right as they were trying to do their final push and reverse their course in the war, um, which, it, and this virus is thought to have contributed to the failure of that push, the failure of them to be able to muster their forces. India, which not much data exists in, that's why I have a spread of 12 million to 17 million deaths, which is the most accurate figure we can come, come up with in our modern day reviews of this topic. Um, in India, uh, at the time under British rule, the uh, British officials didn't provide much aid uh, to um, their subjects during, the, during this and other pandemics. And this pandemic in particular, due to the failures of Western medicine to be able to treat this and the uh, British officials not providing much aid, uh, helped further uh, resentment and uh, more Indians turning towards the independence movement um, as their, uh, the people that they want to support, uh, ultimately helping this independence movement gain credibility and contribute to independence in the next couple of decades. Uh, South Africa, uh, one of the effects of this was hygiene laws instituted, um, which uh, became part of the pillars of uh, apartheid, which um, separated Africans, uh, South African society uh, between um, Caucasian and uh, African uh, populations. And these hygiene laws prohibited uh, people from the country from traveling through cities without uh, uh, written permission. In Japan, this disease was called sumo disease, which started at, started after a sumo match. Wow. So public gathering, very close, um, definitely not social, socially distant people. Um, and this started a trend of wearing uh, face masks um, within popular culture, which um, plenty of pictures from 1918 um, show people wearing uh, what we see today as surgical masks. Um, throughout uh, the world. Russia, we have a surprising, not too surprising paucity of data on, and this is where a lot of the uncertainty and the death tolls and the amount of people infected comes from, because it was undergoing significant civil strife, civil wars, um, so it's just impossible to know how many people were affected by this um, disease. So, um, another case to go through um, because of some of our experiences with COVID-19 um, is an ocean liner um, called the USS Leviathan. So it was a German ocean liner turned into a U.S. troop transport, um, routinely carried around 11,000 troops. Um, actually, it had pneumatically sealed 
bunks for the troops. So it was thought while this flu was going around that these pneumatically sealed bunks would help isolate the infection to uh, whoever lived in the bunk with the uh, uh, patient with the flu. However, an outbreak uh, ran through the whole ship uh, despite these attempts to control the virus, um, resulting in 2,000 sick and 80 deaths on transit from US to France. Um, this is a uh, article discussing the Diamond Princess cruise ship, um, which uh, was pus put under quarantine um, and left us all wondering how this went so wrong. Uh, interesting given that we know from prior experience that ships are particularly uh, good at spreading disease amongst their passengers just to, to, due to how close and compact everybody is on, uh, on these liners. So the third wave of the virus sometimes gets skipped over um, in reviewing the 1918 flu, um, but it was rather significant. It was much milder, uh, far less deaths, but still a sp particular spike in deaths as you can see in this graphic. The first wave uh, being the one on the far left, second wave being the mountain in the middle, and the third wave being the aftershock later. So uh, this third wave tended to occur as the uh, war was wrapping up, and uh, the motion of people around the world increased as soldiers were returning home. Um, people started not uh, isolating themselves as the disease seemed to have petered out, and then the the disease spiked right back up. So the immediate aftermath of the 1918 flu was uh, several aftershocks after the last wave um, with local pu public gatherings, which persisted for a couple years. Um, this pandemic actually rapidly faded into obscurity. The thought is that it was kind of bundled with the um, memories of World War I, which also tended to fade into obscurity obscurity with the Great Depression and World War II after. Um, and to this day, H1N1 remains a frequently circulating strain of the, the flu, though much milder than we saw in 1918. Um, and it's a constant component of our flu va uh, vaccines yearly uh, due to this concern. Um, so what did we learn from this uh, particular pandemic? One, the importance of honest communication between uh, leadership and the populace. Uh, the censorship measures help contribute to the spread of this uh, flu as well as to the general uh, panic that occurred throughout the second wave. Um, voluntary isolation when sick. Uh, we probably knew this lesson beforehand, but it's always good to reiterate um, people to stay home when they're sick, avoid spreading the disease. Um, they staggered work hours, which today we have interpreted as working from home when possible. Um, reducing the chance of uh, running into infected people now to uh, hopefully none. No large public gatherings. We saw this very early in the COVID outbreak where uh, large public gatherings and public events were being canceled even before um, we saw this rapid uptick in cases. Uh, as also evidenced by the fact that I'm presenting this via the internet rather than in person in a large public group. Um, uh, as well, to, well, we learned to cover coughs um, and sneezes. New York actually outlawed this during the 1918 flu, 
wouldn't be surprised if they tried to outlaw it again. And uh, eventually we learned the lesson to not just spit on the sidewalk in public. Um, as well, to avoid unnecessary travel, uh, motion of infected people is how these diseases spread. So, um, this concludes my talk on uh, the 1918 flu. Um, these are my uh, resources I used. Most of them came from around the times of the SARS outbreak uh, due to people having the same desire to look back to the lessons learned and help to help guide them uh, through that, pandem that uh, almost pandemic and then this one as well. Thank you for your time. Have a good night.